0: Hello and welcome to the You Know How to Live show. My name is Kate Hammer and in just a moment we will have Rhonda McGee with us. Rhonda is a professor of law at the University of San Francisco, trained in sociology and mindfulness-based stress reduction, also known as MBSR. She is a highly trained facilitator of trauma-sensitive, restorative MBSR interventions for lawyers and law students, and for minimizing the effects of social identity-based bias. Today, we will be digging into her book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, and talking about how you can develop your own ongoing practice of awareness and action against injustice. Now, wherever you are listening or watching from, I'm so glad that you tuned in and are hanging out. I hope that you are ready for my favorite combination of things, hopefully a bit of entertainment and, of course, some takeaways to improve how you work and play and do all the things you do in between. Please take a moment right now to subscribe, follow, leave a comment, or give a five-star review so that we can stay connected. And with that, let's bring in Rhonda McGee. Hi, Rhonda. Thank you so much for making time to be here and to chat with me today about your book.
1: Hello, Kate. It's beautiful to be with you. Thank you.
0: Oh, wonderful. Okay. So before we talk about your book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, would you tell us a little bit about the work you do as an educator and how you became interested in mindfulness
1: within the context of teaching? mm well, so thank you so much. I've been—I'm um, uh, a lawyer by training. I also studied um, sociology at the graduate level. I was trying to decide when I, at a certain point in university, whether I wanted to get a PhD and maybe teach sociology. Um, mm-hmm. I was really interested in how people uh, resolve conflicts, and so um, you know, in conversations with my uh, graduate studies advisor. We got this idea, maybe you should go to law school. So I ended up going to law school, but the view always to be able to teach and to help people think well about how we resolve conflict. So practice law for a bit and then started teaching. I've been teaching for more than 20 years at, um, at the university of San Francisco Mm -hmm. and visiting at a couple other places. But, uh, you know, it became very clear to me that when we really are learning and, um, in a way that's transformative, it's not just a cognitive or intellectual practice or engagement. It's a kind of a whole body thing. Like, you know, we are, we are like, we feel things. We're in relationship with each other when we're really learning and we're really feeling in kind of a flow around learning. And so I started to gravitate towards ways of teaching that would enhance that sense of being completely engaged in the Process of learning the knowledge, skills, and values associated with being a lawyer, and that led me to this sort of contemplative or mindful education approach. And so, I'm part of this network of people who teach at the university and K through twelve level, and at various levels now, post you know, edu- post official education into professional and um, other uh, developmental um, engagements. But from this place of Centering on uh, the holistic, subjective piece, like who we are and where we come from and what we already know, and yeah. how that relates to the objective, you know, scholarly, research-based sources of knowledge, and mm-hmm. then how we interpersonally—that kind of um, that that second person, you and I together—how we learn better uh, together. So, so um, I bring this sort of contemplative way of teaching and learning to. Teaching about law, but also teaching about uh, multicultural education, multicultural reality, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice, social activism. So yeah. that's really what my passion has been.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, you take us back um, in your story as an educator to a time in the book. Uh, to a time when this was not part of how you taught. Um, It may have been part of your personal life and your personal pursuit. And you spoke about this very wise advice that you received in therapy. Can you talk a little bit about what that was?
1: Yeah, thanks for naming that part of my story. Um, Because it is such an important point. It was an important point for me, but I also you know, hope it it resonates in some respects or invites people into a similar kind of inquiry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in this place where I was um, really not sure whether after all these years of training, study, focus, dedication, having yeah. gotten tenure as a law professor, I really felt that the way I had been taught in law school, wonderful law school, you know, the University of Virginia, it's yeah. a very good law school, yeah. but the way yeah. I had been taught just didn't really feel, you know, it felt like I was leaving something behind um, when I would enter into the classroom. It felt like I wasn't, if I were sort of teaching the way I had been taught, yeah, sort of following the model of the actually mostly male, mostly white male law professors that I had been privileged and fortunate to learn with, mm-hmm. if I followed that model, which was kind of what we learned to do in law, you sort of just teach the way you were taught. I felt like I was missing something, and maybe that maybe I was on the wrong path because I felt like this interior, interpersonal, more holistic approach to Mm -hmm. learning, which invites our stories in, which invites our emotional reactivity in, which invites our challenges at building trustworthy relationships which can be essential if we're going to learn together <laughs> um, and collaboratively, right? So there was a lot that I felt that like I wasn't bringing in. So I was thinking maybe I should leave law. And I went to a therapist and and I got this really important advice from me that, you know, you could always leave this great job that you have worked really hard to get in a beautiful city that you love living in and so on and so forth. Like you could just leave and start over. But- mm-hmm for doing that why don't you explore fully dropping anchor where you are like really seeing if you're bringing all of who you are if you're taking the risk pushing the envelope Mm -hmm. to bring more of who you are right here and if you do that for a little bit and then you really find hey i've done that and it's you know i pushed the envelope as far as i can Mm -hmm. Uh, then you can sort of discern, okay, I've done all that. And I really do need to, to to start over or take a different path or leave. And here's why. And that was really, really helpful advice for me. It kind of helped put me on the path to doing this work, to bringing my own voice, my own approach. Mm-hmm. In, and it led to all of these beautiful outcomes that, you know, the book and other things have flowed from that.
0: Yeah. I so appreciate that you chose to share that wisdom because it actually can be applied so broadly. You yes. know, sometimes when we evaluate our work, our jobs, our careers, we're thinking about what they look like on paper, not necessarily what we as individuals can bring to them and and how that and how we can like bring them alive and awake in that way. Exactly. So, I love that. Yeah, I was so moved by that. I love
1: that. We have power. I mean, you know, we obviously have power, and yet we often don't realize that we have it in ways that can be applied everywhere, including to, hmm, how do I meet this particular job role responsibility in a way that's kind of uniquely mine? Hmm. And that, you know, is what really, I think, is um, the basic teaching of that experience for me, that we can do that anytime. Mm Mm-hmm. Ah, I love that. Okay. Why did you decide
0: to write The Inner Work of Racial Justice? And who is it written for?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I think it's a little bit of a follow-up to what I was just speaking about in that um, I had been, but just to say a little bit more, I've been teaching law, but really teaching a range of types of courses, so personal injury law and immigration and just all the kind of typical things, some typical courses, but also a course I've been creating about race in American legal history, uh, race in contemporary uh, law and policy, and really inviting um, a kind of a deeper dive into, you know, what really are the aspirations that people bring to this work of racial justice? Mm-hmm. And where is the law kind of um part of the problem, and how has it been part of the solution, and why does it have this sort of two faced right re- way of presenting itself somehow so but that you know that's some that's some serious inquiry right that <laughs> uh, you know this is not yeah. just here are the four elements of a negligence tort you know like here's how you prove somebody failed to use due care the kind of work I do in my my personal injury class uh It was, this is inviting, um, you know, really reflecting, what does equality mean? Mm. You know, who, who, what, what is it that um, anti-discrimination law is meant to repair? Or Mm. what is it meant to, if it's against discrimination, what is it for? You know, Mm. what are we really, uh, you know, trying to achieve? And again, in recognition of the fact that we we're doing this in a, a real live context where people... Have experience with this thing called race and law, them themselves, their family, their parents, their loved ones. We mm-hmm. you know something about this. So, so yeah, I really uh felt in my efforts to bring this subject matter alive and and support all my 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 students, my colleagues, and others as we engage in these issues into yeah. this sort of holistic type of engagement um, that I was mentioning before. Yeah, I, I really felt that um mindfulness and compassion practices were helping. So I started bringing that into the classroom. And in that sense, I, you know, the book, the content for the book just started to evolve mm-hmm. and I began presenting about what I was doing in the classroom and people started saying, it sounds like you either have a book or something you're working on, you know? So in other words, mm-hmm. publishers actually were contacting me before I had a book ready actually And so that's always (laughs) (laughs) that whatever it is that you're doing is resonating with people and could offer some benefit beyond where you are. So, yeah, I mean, I wrote the book partly because it was flowing out of my work. I wanted to write. I am Mm -hmm. as a scholar and teacher. We write. So Mm -hmm. I was in the process around it, but then also getting this positive feedback. And in terms of the audience, you know, I really wrote the book for everybody. Because I actually think that, well, in my humble experience on the planet these decades and in these conversations I've had with thousands of people around race, uh, it's so clear that, um, you know, we all have relevant information and experience that can assist us in really understanding more about you know, how race and how race is a feature in our lives today, how, what racism, you know, in its all its various guises, you know, it looks Mm -hmm. different here, it looks different there, what it looks like in different contexts, the impacts it has had. And because I think um, some of us are more used to talking about race as a feature in our lives Mm -hmm. than others. You know, it's uh, it's a good question. It's not obvious that actually I'm, I'm on the one hand inviting people who haven't had very much support and experience looking at race and racism, in their own experience, and talking about it with others. Mm-hmm. Definitely, the book is written to invite those folks to the table, mm-hmm. but it's also written for folks who have daily experience engaging in a world which is reminding us and this is often people of color right in a mm-hmm. in a world and context where um you know if you're a member of the majority of whatever group and mm-hmm. you're in a place where you know your your kind of identity and background let's say you're in a majority white space community institution mm-hmm. environment your bi- background is can sometimes feel a little bit invisible it's almost like the water you're swimming in there's no there's nothing pointing out daily Mm -hmm. that makes you feel like it's about race or race is relevant but by contrast when people who are um, minoritized or you know in a minority situation in that context Mm -hmm. are there they are able to sort of see oh no we're swimming in a particular kind of water and my experience is a little different and so it's the invitation is for those folks as well to kind of um, explore the way that awareness and compassion practices mm-hmm. can help us, and I'll speak as one who daily and regularly experiences being reminded that race is a feature in my life,
0: mm-hmm.
1: how these practices can help us, first of all, heal from some of the wounds that come from being you know targeted for discrimination or negative stereotypes mm-hmm. or microaggressions, whatever that is. Um, and also, again, since our power feel uh, our power to uh, disrupt uh, some of the ways that those wounds can lead to further negative consequences in our lives. Uh, mm-hmm. Mindfulness, you know, very famously supports us in sort of recognizing there's that first wound that any one of us might experience as a teaching called the, the two arrows. The first arrow is like whatever happens, it could be a physical wound, an injury. In other words, soft bellied human Beings, we're vulnerable in the world. Things happen to us.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That first arrow can happen to any one of us. It could be physical injury. It could be psychological damage or trauma. Mm -hmm. How we respond to that, including how we might ruminate, seize it, tell us Mm -hmm. constant storage, twist the arrow in a little bit more. That second, that's in the Buddhist teachings, if I may, Um, in the base for a lot of the mindfulness work. That second arrow is one we can control. How mm-hmm. deep are we, how are we about really noticing what we're contributing to the harm? And so I, there the, the work also invites, that's just one example, that's just one example of how mm-hmm. the work can invite people who are feeling the wounds of racism and discrimination and all the other isms and schism, by the way, that intersect with race, right? It's gender, uh, immigration status and on and on and on, right? It's not just this one dimension. There are always, um, you know, multiple uh, intersecting vectors of social harm that we're talking about. When we mm-hmm. talk about race in particular, because it's often very hard to look at that part, mm-hmm. uh, we can very easily skip off into class or gender or anything else if we're not really holding ourselves into this space. But yeah, so the book was really written for... Um, all of us, uh, who, because each of us, in our own unique ways, have experienced, have suffered, though not equally, but in some way,
0: mm-hmm. around
1: this uh, this thing called racism, which is really, in my view, about the the way that um, human efforts to categorize in group and out group, and us and them, and these sorts of folks and that sorts of which is a very common, back to the sociologists and me, that's a very mm-hmm. common thing that humans do. But once we do that, we then often rank order, right? We are, and we're not content really with mere differentiation and diversity because mm-hmm. then we have to in, right embed in the differences, meaning and um, preferences, you know. And um, from there, the minute there's any kind of resource accumulation, how we distribute resources varies. So some people have better access to rights to immigrate than others. Mm-hmm. Some people have better access to education, health care, um, respect, the power to decide even how to distribute the resources that we have. All of these things vary. And um, so I think of racism as, a, as an invitation for us to look at how these prejudices that flow from the differentiations that we make as human beings intersect with power differences Mm -hmm. to lead to maldistributions of the resources necessary to thrive. And so we all like in some way might be in a place of power, in a place of disadvantage around this or that, um, and have more or less influence Mm -hmm. around these things. So it's an invitation, I think, to really look at power, its use and abuses, and how power is distributed in ways that tell us something about the ongoing impact of these racial groups, including in our own psyche. Like, how are we thinking about who should be in power, who should have access, who should have education and healthcare? Mm-hmm. And what are the subtle inputs mm-hmm. that tell us that some people are more deser- deserving than others? And again, race is just one of those inputs but it's one that we might want to look at if we are concerned about a more just and equal world.
0: Yes. Absolutely. You know, as I was reading your book, I did get that sense of how inclusive it was meant to be. Um, There are moments of challenge. There are so many stories, but it felt like a series of invitations and requests for you to do something to whether it's reflect but and you know and what action you might do after the reflection but um what I found is I never felt like I was left hanging or wondering what to do next there's a lot of guidance throughout the book which I loved yeah Thank you. you yeah. That? So you, you speak to the necessity of healing within the community context. Mm-hmm. Can you describe what that means and how someone might set out to to mm-hmm. do that, to heal within community context?
1: Well, I'm so glad you asked that question. I mean, it invites really first pausing and thinking like, what do we even mean by community and who's in that? Right, already is like, yeah. What community? <laughs> is there a community? Like, I mean, because I think in our, you know, in these times, I it's I think there's a lot of ambivalence almost around the idea of community. I mean, you know, I mean it's often people feel a little bit on the outs, you know, right? It's like, yeah, am I in a community? Who is what is my community? Where is my community? And so and when we talk about these issues of race, there's often like a presumption that there is, for example, a black community. Mm -hmm. um, And we must be talking about that. And there must be, you know, where are they? And, what, you know, where is the member who's in charge of this community? And you start to really realize it. So that's a question like, how am I defining community? Mm -hmm. And and by the way, a lot of my teaching and this contemplative approach, this mindful approach to teaching and learning, Sometimes we use contemplative learning um, as a way of thinking about it. You know, it's very evo- it's very um, inquiry based, right? It's much less about here's how you should think about it, and much more about what do you already know about this? Where are your questions? Mm-hmm. And where are your mixed messages and confusion? Less like so. And the same is true for the community piece, but. So I, I, so I, it's, but there is something to this idea that um, we, first of all, we live in communities, right? We live in groups and um, often in some way obvious and not obvious, we're sort of feeling our way into networks of um, connection and concern and we might, if we stop and think about it, feel like it's kind of a community. It might be the place where we grew up, or the place where we live now, where we work. It might be defined by our social identities, or it may not be. So we have different ways of thinking about it. But what I definitely, when I, in the subtitle, transforming our communities, mm-hmm. again, as you know, as you're pointing out in my book, I'm writing, really inviting people to think about, well, what is the community you'd like to be yeah. in? Is it where you live right now? Is it your workplace? Is it the network of people that you work with, which may be, you know, at this point, global global or cl- transnational? Or is it is it um, these historical racialized communities that we think of sometimes when we think about the impact of racism, right? So the Black community, the white community, whether we're talking in a particular area or maybe even more broadly. So what do we mean? But however we mean that, I think it's first important to think about what we mean and what that mm, what we what we what we what we both experience in these communities. Yeah, that may be tied to these legacies of racism, or maybe playing out some of the dynamics, mm-hmm. often unintentionally. Right, we may have just inherited some ways of being that, if we look around, are kind of constituting a certain kind of community. Mm-hmm. And it may not have been exactly what we chose, but it is what it is. And so bringing awareness to who we are mm-hmm. in this community and who we aren't. And then inquiring about that is again part of this effort, inquiring about how we might bring more intentionality mm-hmm. to how we constitute communities. Um, and that can look very like very many things, but some inquiry into. You know, how did this community get to be formed this way with these demographics, for example? You know, often, yeah. even if we haven't been thinking about it ourselves, if we stop and think about it, we might start to understand that there are some uh, dynamics driving communities to be formed and constituted, populated by, right, demographically uh constituted in this way versus this way. And if we look more closely at those drivers and think about our intentions, our values, what we really want, Mm -hmm. we might be able to discern together. By the way, I think a lot about this idea of working with others and having power with others as opposed Mm -hmm. to power over, (laughs) Mm -hmm. trying to transform how we use our power, right? Mm -hmm. Can we use our power together as opposed to like over people? that's what we mean in some ways, I mean, by racial justice.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So when we start thinking about like, well, how would we together form this community Mm -hmm. and what would it take to get us there? And what does that take inside of me? Like to become the kind of person who can work with others to become, you know, to help form that community. What would it take for us? Like what do we need to be able to see together, do together, say to each other, what kind of conflict, resolution processes that we have right because it's not always going to be you know puppies and rainbows (laughs) how do we resolve the inevitable conflicts and um and then what do we do in terms of the policies or practices that keep us going together along this path this values identified or values aligned path so i Mm -hmm. think having a sense of like who the community is what Mm -hmm. our values are and then embedding this sort of willingness and the tools to support this kind of ongoing inquiry which i smile when i talk about because to me this is the joyful part it's like who are we really and what are we trying to do and well, let's get after that with self consciousness yeah. right and see what yeah. can come alive as we do that together
0: yeah yeah absolutely i love though how the book is really a journey. you know it starts with you just simply reflecting and these stories you know reading through these stories and reflecting on your reactions and and what surfaces throughout but it moves you toward what you can do next and and what that can look like within the context of others but when i think about someone who would pick this book up okay it's somebody who's interested in learning about racial justice mm-hmm. someone who's interested in Learning about healing and Mm -hmm. mindfulness, and someone who probably recognizes that there is a practice that is ongoing potentially. Mm -hmm. It's not just, hey, I'm going to go learn a thing and then check the box. Like, no, and you, yeah. And I think you explain very well why it needs to be that way. um, And then how you can really do that successfully over a long period of time, over a lifetime, hopefully.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for putting it that succinct. That's exactly what I was trying to do with the book. <laughs> I mean, really have people yeah. see it as like an <laughs> ongoing arc of life, <laughs> yeah. right? Because as you so beautifully put it, this isn't about, we go to a training, we do it yeah. right? It's really seeing that, of course, we're we're in this soup, if you will, of like mm-hmm. all of the legacies of race and racism that are just always around. And it'd be, you know, it'd be one thing if we could somehow magically erase it all and never have any new inputs. But my goodness, all you have to do is pick up this guy or turn on the news, right? And there's more information and input, right? Some more that we could have a reaction to slide it into our pre-existing teachings and trainings about who matters, who doesn't, and like come out, right. Of of Mm -hmm. later emails that we get today with a new commitment to some sort of subtle stereotype or, you know what I mean? So because Mm -hmm. it's ongoing in our social lives, right. This thing race is a, like a more of a dynamic. It is a construction in my view. It is something that we do Mm -hmm. as opposed to something that exists in the world. Like, Mm -hmm. And because of that dynamic interchange through which we kind of make real the ideas we hold about race, it, the book is kind of an invitation to be present, to noticing that, yeah. recognizing that if we've constructed race and racism, we might be able to deconstruct it in these ways that we are together. But to do that is going to require lifelong yeah, engagement and courage and care and waking up to where we get stuck. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I, you know, I would say for someone who is interested in learning more, but then wants to know what to do with what they're learning, this is the perfect book for you. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And I've actually, I'll say, I've had activists read it and say, this reminds me of what, you know, we, some of us have learned that the You know, we look at civil rights movements and movements for social change in our history, which, of course, some version of these have gone on through history all across the globe and over time. Yeah. So we often we say the civil rights movement is like this one thing, but it's like of a piece with this broad effort across the globe, looks different, different places where pockets of human beings get together and say, we want to try to make this world a little bit more fair and just and equal. And let's see what we can do together. Well, um, in the civil rights movement, in particular, there were trainings given to activists. Mm -hmm. There was like a a school called the Highlander School. If listeners are interested, where before you know Rosa Parks and others went on the front lines to sit and to disrupt, they were Mm -hmm. trained in how to incorporate nonviolence tactics, how to how to you know be in this that crucible of all of Mm -hmm. the what would you know what would come from challenging these powerful structures that were committed to hierarchy, hmm. it's not easy. Um, and so the training that was offered pre- wasn't meant to help prepare the inner lives and the inner experience for being in those conflicts and coming out with mm-hmm. something, you know, that could sustain and survive and thrive, perhaps ideally. And uh, I've had at least, you know, one of my readers I'm thinking of right now who said, your book is like it's like that type of training in a book for people. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: Yes. I agree. It is training straight up. Yeah, oh, I love that. Yes. Okay. So moving away from the book a little bit and more about uh, how you make all of this work. You know, we know that you're a tenured professor and you're teaching and then you decided to pursue this writing as well. I think what people listening are really interested in learning more about when someone who's able to, you know, is able to juggle so much and find so much success within that, what does that look like on the ground? (laughs) Like, how do you kick off your day? What is your morning routine? How are you jumping into all of this and making it happen? (laughs) But very specifically, what is your, what is your morning routine on an ideal day?
1: Yeah. So, okay. On an ideal and typical, not, not, not a typical day, I would say, um, you know, um, I'm, I get up and I'm, you know, I, I really try and create some space for starting the day with intention. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that looks like setting the alarm clock uh, earlier than I need need to for whatever I, you know, have to do outside in the world or any engagement that I have um, to, to really give myself a buffer uh, of grounding in my own practices. And so um, whether I've set the alarm clock intentionally or I know I've just you know, my inner alarm wakes up. The goal for me always is to have a good buffer that's Mm -hmm. um, spaciously holding a a period of time for me to ground in my intentions and in my, you know, practices for reconnecting to Mm -hmm. source and to values and to, um, you know, these inner resources. So that can, what, so that how I use that buffer time Yes. You know, varies, right? Because like a lot of folks, if I'm doing the same exact thing every day, it can get a little bit monotonous. Mm-hmm. But I do um, practices for becoming aware and awake in my body that include, you know, yes, sitting meditation mm-hmm. is the kind of a core practice for me, uh, a regular go-to practice for me that I will infuse throughout the day, including at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, Body scan meditations, which I sometimes will engage in before I even get out of bed. Just like I'm waking up early, I'm awake and clearly awake because this is the temptation with the body scan, it can lower one back to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> but if but I feel if, cozy right, right. now, I will go back to bed. <laughs> right. But if you're, you know, calling forth this practice as a support for. You know, as one of my teachers, John Kabat-Zinn says, you know, this idea of like body scan as you rise, you know, as a support for starting the day to kind of really wake up before you like you wake up and then you really wake up to like the life in your body with a body scan, Um, lying down or seated. Um, I absolutely, uh, you know, have as a a daily commitment, some movement practice. Mm And often it is um, some simple yoga Mm -hmm. uh, asanas or uh, Qigong. Um, And I'm looking already toward the window because I often practice right in front of a a window because I think it's a way for me of remembering the connection between this body and this spirit and, you know, whatever I've become awake to within myself. Mm-hmm. And this so-called environment, this air that we're breathing right now, this ground that is holding us right now that basically we are a part of, we tend to think of we're somehow separate from this environment. So so I like to have, especially in the morning, but not only then, mm-hmm. but certainly as a part of how I wake up in my buffer in the morning, you know, looking out on the day. You know, today we're privileged, fortunate here. I'm um, in San Francisco. We've had a big rain event. We've had the atmospheric river and the bomb cyclone and all this interesting weather language. With, oh goodness! With, yeah, with intense rain. Yeah, and wind, and and right now it's calm. Right now it's probably going to come back, but yeah. check me out. Right? What's, what's that, dear? I just said, yeah, it's going to come exactly. back. <laughs> right but like being present to like, what is this day? And yeah. how is this impacting me? And, and, and remembering, I think the, the purpose for all of this is not just to become huh, present to the breast and feel it, which mm. is a big part of it, but also to remember, to mm. remember mm. the preciousness of life that we have this moment for sure. We know from the coronavirus and every other thing we tend to forget it as often as we can, because that's what humans do. But we know our lives are precious and and shockingly short, mm-hmm. actually. So the question is, how do we want to live? We don't know exactly how long we have. So part of what I'm doing in that buffer time is really remembering that my life matters, and therefore the things I do matter. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to be perfect, because no one can be. That's a setup for failure. But it's remembering as often as possible that what I do with the time that I have, including this moment and this day, matters. And so yeah, part of part of my regular practice is starting the day with time to meditate, to focus, to feel my life, to feel the connection and to feel the preciousness and the invitation to take some action that can be that matters right here, right now. And then I also like to have time later in the day. So when I'm, if I need it, like stresses build up during the day, I go for a walk, a mindful walk. I do movement again. You know, I shake it off. I do all kinds of practices to kind of, you know, because again, stress can pop up anytime. So I embed these practices to like, let it go. And then often close the night with um, a meditative sit, even if it's just a few moments on the edge of the bed or on my cushion. I have a cushion in an area right where I take a nightly shower if I want to do that. So just different ways that I've set myself my life up to support this kind of regular check-in and remembering
0: the most important thing,
1: which is that we have this moment. Let's make the most of it.
0: Yeah. I like what you just said, that you'll take a walk midday if you need it. So even the idea of considering at some point in your day, what do I need? Yeah. Yes. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, every day. What? (laughs) Right. That just on its own is kind of an incredible thing for me to consider because, you know, we're, you know, up to our eyeballs in our to-do list. Where's the... You know, how are we gonna check the box on the remembering to ask ourselves what we need? So I love that. Do you find that there are certain tells for you where you know, oh yeah, I need a walk today?
1: Yes. And and actually walking is a pretty regular practice too. So mm-hmm. and, it, and it helps it actually because I do that regularly, it kind of keeps me regulated. But yeah, if I um there are times when first of all when i'm I might go to meditate and I'm really feeling distracted and feeling out of my body for me it's like no I'm not gonna be at war with reality. maybe I need to move you know to shake up the energy a bit, whether it's some you know movement practice or a good vigorous walk to support me in grounding i'm often uh I often remind myself that um you know, sometimes tension is being held in the body in a way that actually just needs to move. And from that place, uh, I can center and calm and have like more of the sense of restoration that can come from a seated meditation. Mm -hmm. So really, but the key is to sort of have this informal mindfulness Mm -hmm. running in the background throughout the day. Like an informal mindfulness is just sort of lovingly One of my teachers and friends uses this idea, thinks of mindfulness as a good friend. Oh. It's always there. Yeah. To like, uh, how are you doing? Like, you know. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Right? Yeah. (laughs) We're trying to do the thousand things. We're doing all these things. We're accomplishing stuff. Mindfulness is there to be like, do you need, where is your water right now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you... Have you paused, you know, have you gone outside while the sun was shining <laughs> during a period of rain, <laughs> you know, what do you need on a regular basis and giving permission to um, reclaim, mm-hmm. right? That as a, as a sort of very important support for, for thriving. Again, I, in my book, as you know, I use the phrase personal justice in a way mm-hmm. for to kind of touch or turn us toward this part of how this relates to the justice work that we do. It's like, Mm -hmm. if I'm not taking better care of my own self, like, how in the world can I really expect somebody out there to do it? How do I even know what being cared for looks like? How do I know what justice might look and feel like if I don't know how to look for, you know, the, the sort of, disconnects and um unlovingness that I'm carrying in my own body Mm. toward myself so so yeah I think yeah the idea of mindfulness as this good friend that's always there to kind of like gently say oh you know what what you're feeling there is some tightness in your shoulder because Mm -hmm. you're still you know You had that difficult conversation and now it's sitting in your shoulder, right? Mm -hmm. Why don't you just pause for a little bit, process that, do you need to pick up the phone and call this person, right? Mindfulness is that underlying body-based, like it's it's the mind in relationship to the body, like where am I, how am I doing? Am I running on empty because I've been staying up too late, hanging out with friends, whatever it is? Trying yeah. to make other people feel like I'm with them. Like, because when they have a party, I want to be there. It's like, but is that serving you now? And can you give yourself permission to pull back? That constant remembering, again, most important thing, this is our one life. How do we want to live it? And what do we need to, to bring in the way of commitment to ourselves to enable us to really live our best lives? Wow that was so beautifully said
0: i can't wait to listen back to this <laughs> <laughs> seriously i i mean yeah I just feel the sense of you giving permission for this. And we need that from each other, right? Yeah, Um, for sure.
1: Because I can see you're working really hard, right? I mean, you know, you're, you, this didn't just happen that you have this podcast. (laughs) And so having these intentionalities means, you know, we too need support and permission to just pause. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, when I think about, like, of course, of course, I can believe. Uh, if you or somebody else takes good care of themselves, that that will help them in their performance and how they feel, and that they'll be living their best life. But when it's my turn to take care of myself, there's that resistance there
1: of like, but I have these other things, and yes. so. Oh yeah, and for mm-hmm. me, I had that as a big part of my. This, I've had a long, like repairing talk about reparations mm-hmm. I've had this long like personal reparations project repairing from like messages I got as a little girl about oh even this very simple thing of um can I can I be unwell like is there like if I'm not feeling well mm-hmm. I somehow got the message that it, my job was to push through always. Mm-hmm. And you know, there are times I uh, let's admit it, there are times when you kind of have to push through. You know, if you got to take care of somebody else, you got a baby in the house or whatever's <laughs> got you got a commitment, you have to, you know, there are times. Yeah. yeah. But if if your everyday all the time response to your own needs is you no, you don't get and then these very negative tapes of, you know. Meanness to ourselves. I'm maybe I'm the only one that ever did this. But I had these kind of tapes, things that I would yeah. say to myself that I would never say to another human, like a person I loved who was sort of feeling a little bad or down. I would never say things, but I would lift them up. I would say, you need a break. And so I've learned to do that for myself.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, so yes. if you're like me and you're listening and you're like, okay, I keep hearing about mindfulness, but I don't really have any kind of practice, you know, th- it's never too late to start. I'm, I'm very invested in, and attracted to what I'm learning from you, Renda. And, um, and I really see the value there.
1: So. Yeah. And it can be, doesn't have to take hours out of Wednesday a buffer that I, like I talked about can be three minutes. It's just really claiming your attention and time for yourself and being clear about that and and really locking in a commitment to ourselves. And again, it does not have to take more time. It's about how we are with the time that we have. Mm. Yes. So well said. Okay.
0: (laughs) From here, we are going to move on to those two, quick segments that I mentioned to you before. The first one is this or that. So I will list two items. And in order to just get to know you a little bit better, we'll hear which you would pick. Okay. All right. Here we go. Would you rather read a book or listen to a playlist? Read a book. (laughs) Which phrase do you identify with more? I am who I am, or I am always evolving.
1: I'm always evolving. Mm.
0: Go on an adventure or stay in and relax?
1: These are so hard because I like all of them. <laughs> okay, I'm keeping choose one. Stay in and relax.
0: <laughs> yeah. Especially because it's about to be cold out, right? Let's be real. Yeah. <laughs> um, rewatch favorites or search for a new show. Rewatch
1: favorites. I'm oh so, yeah. I'm so boring. Yes.
0: No. Well, I have to ask them just super
1: quick. Do you have a favorite that comes to mind? No, but what I was thinking about is I I like classic movies. Oh, okay. So I'm a classic movie person and I've seen most of them or many many of and and my favorite old stars. Um so yeah, I am I'm thinking of that.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, and when you think of classic movies like what era are you thinking of? What decade or
1: Well, it's the, it's okay. the whole I'm I am a I am like a film. I feel like one of the lives I didn't take that I could be taking right now as a PhD in film person. So yeah. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious about the entire evolution of these, this cultural product of film. And so I I watch, I especially watch movies from like the golden age of Hollywood, if you will. Uh Uh-huh. And yeah. So it's all those early stars whose names we know, and some we don't know as well, mm-hmm. but, you know, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and mm-hmm. Myrna Boy and Bill Powell. I mean, these people that a lot of people are like, who, what? Robert Montgomery, but also, um, you know, looking at Oscar Michaud, the first black director um, of mm-hmm. silent movies and, you know, within these gates and hallelujah, these early black, representations on film and films made by women producers and and directors whose names we don't know enough of because a lot of the female uh, early creators of Hollywood and mm-hmm. a film were sort of forgotten or it kind of intentionally buried. So yeah. Um, yeah, so I it's it's another place for me to look at the social dynamics of inclusion and exclusion and to just sort of think about how they are part of those stories. That are the subtle inputs to who matters and who doesn't.
0: Yeah. Wow. So it's not even just a matter of entertainment for you. No, really. Like this is a deep interest. Yeah. Yeah. Is. That's really interesting. Okay. We're moving on. Okay. Right. So socially, what do you prefer? The more the merrier or more fun with fewer? More fun with fewer. Okay. And the last one for this or that here for humor or please be serious.
1: Here for humor. <laughs> all right. right, <laughs> eleven. <laughs> right. Because my goodness, life is serious enough. Yeah. I'm, oh. I'm actually both. I think all, that's the thing I've learned that I have this introvert ext- extrovert, like I'm right on the line. Yeah. I'm a lot of like, this and that is my thing. And uh, so it was hard. Those choices were hard, but I appreciate the questions.
0: So you just are identifying with the whole structure, all the
1: this is all the that.
0: Yeah. It's all
1: there. It's all there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so serious. Of course, we got to you cannot be, you know, you got to be a person who laughs a lot, given how seriously I take everything.
0: <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Very <laughs> well said. Okay. So the next section is called rapid fire. And so these are just shorter answer questions uh and just a handful of them first question is could you tell me something that you've read lately that you would recommend to others
1: uh yes I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm looking around because I have so many books around I
0: say, me do I see time. stacks of
1: books next to you I have stacks everywhere like yeah. right here, down <laughs> on the ground, I this book, Black and Buddhist, right here. I've got like this whole stack of books in front of me. No, I am. Um... <laughs> so This is the secret. OK, what book would I recommend? Um, I would recommend this book, The Right Use of Power by Cedar Barstow, because I think a big challenge of our time is knowing that we have power. Mm. Knowing that there are many temptations to abusing it and Mm. dedicating ourselves to using our personal power and interpersonal power and official and unofficial power for good. So this is one of the many books (laughs) that I have around. But this is another one, Social Dominance, which is about how we misuse power, like and why and how the temptation to dominate other people. Right. And again, so. so yeah I have a lot of books one over here is called Black Fatigue which Mm -hmm. says it all in the title how exhausted black folk are during this time but yeah then these are just the stacks over here over here I have a whole nother yeah so this is not (coughs) supposed to be yeah no I have can I show you I don't know can you yes please yes Um, let's see the stacks so this can you see these stacks
0: oh yeah you're not kidding (laughs) There are many stacks.
1: Many stacks. My my partner's kind of like, this is not supposed to be a library. We're supposed to have a library space down downstairs. Mm. We have both. And then I have my upstairs. Yeah, so I'm a book person. Yes, very, but
0: isn't it a tradition of libraries to have the upstairs be the stacks? Like that's a thing. Exactly. So really you're just fully living into that idea. I'm fully living into it.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah. I need to have you talk to my partner.
0: Yeah. You could even say,
1: you know, I'm going up to the stacks now. Of you know, course. The second level set. <laughs> we have three levels. So I have books on every level, which I <laughs> think that's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Always
0: within a reach.
1: Yes. Within reach. When someone <laughs> asks a really good question, like what book would you recommend?
0: <laughs> I love that. Well, I ask that a little bit selfishly because... There's really nothing I like more than a great book recommendation, so I'm for sure adding these to my list. But yes. seriously, for listeners, I mean, we're talking about, this is someone who has a room full of books. So these are, these are the books that she mentioned that she's recommending right now, so they obviously must be fantastic. Yeah. If we're talking about within a room full of books, so, you know, it's or a household really.
1: <laughs> so, and, and yet really, honestly, I mean, you know, depending on what we're, I love books because it's a reminder that again, we've inherited so much and all, mm. all of us, again, not that our resources are equal because we know that they're not, but the world and the world of information um, the wisdom that's been gathered, cultivated, shared is so vast and much more easily available, some at cost, but not all at cost. There's so much more that's freely available today than used to be that, um, yeah, I could just go on and on about the good, the books I could recommend. There are just so many.
0: I love that. I'll have to bug you another time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We will jump on to the next question. Do you have a favorite item right now? Maybe it's a tool or an app. Uh, Something that you would recommend to a friend or a colleague that has helped with maybe productivity or just something that you enjoy?
1: That's an an interesting question. What am I having fun with that's like a like a device? It could be, yeah, it could be an app. It could be a game. It could be some sort
0: of tool that you use, like in the context of kitchen or getting ready or your meditation practices. I think generally, like at any given point in time, we kind of have something that we're excited about in that moment. Maybe it's even as simple as like, a new sweater that we get or something like oh, okay. that. Is there anything that you have that you felt like, oh man, like this has helped me or I really enjoy this?
1: Yeah. So one thing is this, these sorts of like coat dress jacket things that. <laughs> yes. Wait, <laughs> describe in more detail. Okay. I mean, maybe I can even stand <laughs> up a bit and maybe you could see a little bit more of it. I know I'm like totally breaking all the, all the podcasts. No, this is fantastic. Okay. It's like really long. Oh yeah. And it can be worn as a coat. You know, it could be worn with nothing underneath it, like a dress. I could put a belt around it. Mm -hmm. And these are made uh, in different countries, a a couple of few different countries in Africa, but Kenya in particular is one. And so, I found these, you know, you can buy them here in San Francisco or online now. Uh huh. So, I have a number of them, and I just, they're just like my new go to thing. Every day I feel like an extra boost of power when yes. I'm wearing one of these. They're like my new power jackets.
0: I love that. And it makes getting ready so much simpler. When <laughs> exactly. You have your own, yeah. So, if someone wanted to
1: find, such a thing. What yes. what sort of word might they use? How would they search up an item like this? Well this particular one, I will go ahead and pro- promote them. I get no fee, no, you know what I mean? Like this is not this is this is I am not a legit like you know what I mean? This is You're just, not
0: influencing.
1: I'm not in right? Nobody's paying <laughs> no one's paying me for this. But uh Zuri, shopzuri.com they're they're made by a company called Zuri Z-U-R-I. Okay. And so um shopzuri.com And they have, you know, they have if you don't want to invest in a jacket um, mm-hmm. because they're, you know, like a hundred and some dollars, they have these little inexpensive scar, less expensive things. Like that. I just cool um, color. You know what I mean? Like I just feel my partner's family's from India actually. And many years ago now, 2007 or so it was one time I went with him to his sister got married. I went there to mm-hmm. the wedding And I remember coming back and feeling like, are Americans depressed? Why are we not having more colors? (laughs) There are the colors. So, because you immediately, we went from Mumbai, Bombay to New York City, and it was color, 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 color everywhere in in India. And we went to New York and it was, everybody's in their black, their gray, their navy, you know, our topes, our basics, (laughs) you know? And yeah it had a spiritual kind of impact to, to, to the, the night and day, color, less color. And I feel that is part of the hidden subtle, you know, kind of soup that we swim in. This, this the, the way in which our culture, um, you know, normalizes what it looks like to be a professional, it doesn't oh yeah right Mm -hmm. so um yeah I've been on a journey to kind of try and repair that sense of separation Mm
0: -hmm. really a lot
1: of my work is about healing separations you know and it feels like there's a way that color is meant you know out there for the artists here I'm a law professor yeah and I want to bring in color I want to bring in creativity uh wherever I can oh
0: what a beautiful statement We love this. Okay. I'm going to have to look this company up. We'll put it in the show notes too so that people can readily find them. Okay. Awesome. What is something people would be surprised to learn about you?
1: Well, some people know this. Mm -hmm. So it's not like it's not knowable out there. But I think people are sometimes surprised to know that I trained as an army officer And Mm -hmm. almost went to West Point, meaning I had an appointment from Senator John Warner to appear at West Point uh, as part of the class of, you know, 1989, I would have been. Mm -hmm. Um, And like the last weekend before I was due to report as a cadet there in the summer of 1985, Mm -hmm. um, I had this opportunity to attend this event for like high-achieving teens. Oh,
0: oh, yes. Your Honor. Where What was it? Um, teen of the Year or Teenager yeah. of the Year? I did. Exactly. Right? right?
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. I got that Teenager of the Year event. Mm-hmm. Thing, so I had gotten that. And then um, I was swept away and honored mm-hmm. at this event. It was my, actually my first time in a plane because my family didn't have, you know, we didn't have resources for flying. So I was in that that teenager of the year honor was, was the thing that led to my first flight. And I was gra- I would, you know, it was summer after graduating high school. Yeah. And I hear I was in what, what they did at this event. I'm laughing, smiling because I've never talked very much about this. And I almost, my partner, when I talk about it, he's like, it just sounds like something that could never have actually happened, but it was something called the Banquet of the Golden Plate, and the idea was to bring yeah. exactly to bring together like these young, achieving kids yeah. with people, adults who had achieved a lot in the world, in 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 medicine, in politics, in music, and so I was surrounded by these people. There were per, the person who created the artificial heart, Doctor Henry Jarvis. Uh, Betty Ford was there. There were like, you know, Lionel Richie, like people who had achieved in all Ooh. these different areas. Mm-hmm. And I was at a table there and, and these adults were asking us things and trying to advise us. And so it was in a conversation there that some basically these, they called them luminaries. They actually said, bring the kids and bring the luminaries. So these uh, elders were saying, you know, it sounds like you might not necessarily want to be a career military officer. Mm. So, you know, and they and I had this um, opportunity to go to the University of Virginia or Georgetown University or West Point, right? So, I was really great options. Options, and so <laughs> yes. they were like, you could choose one of those and be okay. But I was, and it was a whole thing because I had a stepfather who really wanted me to go to an academy, and I was going to be disappointing mm. my stepfather. But because I had these these good counselors. That last weekend before I was supposed to report, I said no to West Point and yes to UVA and did a different life.
0: And that is how it goes, right? Yes. You could have been in film, you could have been in
1: military. (laughs) Exactly. I did do the Army ROTC scholarship though. And so so I didn't go and get the academy, like career out of the military. But I did do ROTC ROTC scholarship. So, yeah, that hidden thing is that I am trained as a military officer, um, but I got Mm -hmm. my training at University of Virginia as opposed to West Point. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now I think of myself as kind of one who wants to be in the army of those who love and heal, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, Yeah. yeah, so... I think yeah. it's a surprise for people to know I actually also trained in sharpshooting with an M16. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, that's specific
0: imagery right there. <laughs> yeah, I did that. I did that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, Rhonda, this has been delightful. I've had such a good time chatting with you. I'm so yeah. I'm so grateful that you wrote this book and decided to just you know share what you've learned through your practice in the classroom and personally with the world, um, and made that accessible to us. So, so thank you for writing it. Thank you for being here and talking with me about it.
1: Thank you. And, um, yeah. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you reached out. You know, um, I really am honored by that. And I again, I see what you're doing, and I'm really really um, it's an inspiration to be in conversation with you. And so keep on doing what you are doing, my dear. Oh, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that so much. Yeah, Awesome. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap.
0: You can find a link in the show notes to connect with Rhonda and you can follow her on Instagram at mcgee. That's R-V-M-A-G-E-E. But whatever you do, don't hesitate to pick up her book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice. As we discussed in the episode today, it truly is a complete guide to creating a lifelong practice of understanding and taking action for racial justice. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed your time with us today, please share this episode with a friend. Then subscribe, follow, leave a comment or a five-star review. Season one of this show will include more chats with top authors, experts, and influential personalities. We will be serving up simplified, applied psychology, habit theory, and quality of life tips and tricks that you can put into action right away. Until next week, I'm Kate Hammer and you know how to live.